Hello and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, where we try to take a look under the bonnet of the market with leading asset allocators. I'm David Thorpe, contributing editor at Asset Allocator, and joining me today is Haig Bathgate, Head of Investments at Atomos Wealth. Haig, thank you for joining me. Thank you. I suppose a, a lot of market outcomes in the months ahead will be impacted by the question of whether rates really have peaked in the US and the UK. What are your thoughts on that and are those thoughts reflected in, in portfolios? Yes, well, I think it, it's it's quite interesting at the moment because the, the market's almost polarised and every day we're seeing um, people talking about peak rates and then the next day they're talking about rates falling off and that's tending to drive the markets for sort of one or two week periods at a time. Uh, most recently, particularly yesterday, we saw um, US bonds, 10-year bonds hitting you know multi-year highs. So there's a lot of uncertainty out there. Um, our view is that rates will take some time to come back down, but they will come back down. The number of disruptive forces um, that are at play at the moment, um, the um, factors in terms of AI application and so on, lead us to believe that inflation, whilst it will remain elevated for a period of time, will eventually fall back. Thank you. Um, but is it time to perhaps batten down the hatches and prepare portfolios for recessions, at least in, in developed markets? Yeah, well, this is the interesting thing. So if we do start to see um, the, the the possibility of a recession increase, actually counterintuitively, that's going to be good for, for bonds because then there'll be an expectation that rates will fall sooner, sooner rather than later. Um, so yeah, I mean, particularly in the UK, I think it's 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 quite interesting looking at the UK because if you if you view the world through the lens of the UK, it looks it looks pretty uh, it looks pretty dire to be honest. Um, the US is in a much better place, although rates are around this, the same as in the UK. Um, the prospects for the for the US economy, I think, are, are substantially superior to what what we're seeing in the UK. So, yeah, counterintuitively, um, the market is starting to to. Sort of price in a bit of a recession, although um, every time we see um, good economic data, that's actually pushing bond yields up. Sure, and I mean, bond yields have both in the US and UK risen stoutly uh, <clears throat> over the last month or so. And again, counterintuitively, um, although um, my, <laughs> the odds of recession seem to be increasing mm-hmm. over the past month or so, short the short end of the curve has actually mm-hmm. outperformed the long end of the curve, yes. which is not what's supposed to happen mm-hmm. if if recession is is imminent, mm-hmm. um, is that simply a, a function of of pricing or valuation, with the long end already reflecting everything and the short end, you know, reflecting not everything or, you know, the short end is an opportunity if recession doesn't happen is is it as simple as that or is there something something else yeah i mean i think it's a, it's a mixture of things we've had a, quite a lot of um, treasury issuance and guilt issuance over over the past month as well which has been confusing things because you've had you've been in a position where we've had net supply of bonds and um, particularly over the last the last few weeks uh, but the market's obviously very fixated on on where they think um, terminal interest rates are going to be um, and every time we see um, good economic data, that's obviously pushing the the, the, the prospect of a, of a rate decrease or, or peak rates out a bit further. Um, and every time we see any sign of con- contraction, that's obviously quite, you know, it's good for long duration assets like bonds. Um, and it's quite good for long duration assets like tech and so on as well. So I think we're just going to see this sort of um, lurch from, from extreme 
um, from one extreme to another until until we see a trend assert itself. We're in the in the middle of one of those classic inflection points, I think. Thank you. And um, you mentioned the uh, exceptional level of issuance uh, within within the the government bond market, um, and that issuance is coming at a time when quantitative tightening is also happening. Mm-hmm. Um, which reverses QE, which means that the central banks are no longer buying bonds and indeed maybe selling them. Um, is that technical factor likely to make it harder to understand how bond markets will react to economic conditions, to exogenous factors? Yeah, I, th- I think in, in, in part it is. I mean, I think what the central banks have shown us is that they are quite reactive. Um, so they were very slow to tighten into this rising inflationary environment. And by implication, I think they'll be quite slow to react if, if if we come out of this inflationary period as well. So what they tend to do is always overreact. So I would argue that they've probably pushed interest rate increases too far. There's always a lagged impact of, of interest rate increases coming through. Um, and, and of course, quantitative tightening is an extension of what they're doing with interest rate policy. It's just trying to control the yield curve and make sure that everything moves up in lockstep. Um, but I think if, if, if things take a turn for the worse, if we start to see the unemployment rate increase in particular, I think a lot is a lot is conditioned on what happens with unemployment. And obviously unemployment's remained ve- resolutely low and, and we've, that I think has been the surprise. Uh, but the central banks won't flinch about changing their policy. And, um, you know, we can see, and I, I think there's even some talk at the moment of the Bank of England intervening to do some yield curve control, so, which is you know, tantamount to um, quantitative easing. Um, if we continue to see um, interest rates increase, we saw them to do, do that to good effect as well when we had the the, the Liz Truss period of of you know market turmoil as well. Sure, thank you. Um, and um, but if developed markets are in trouble, if the world is as dire as it can look from from the UK, is there capacity for emerging markets to provide a haven? Again, it's it's arguably slightly counterintuitive because. The traditional view of emerging markets is that that they're a geared play on on global GDP. So if the rest of the world is in trouble, emerging Mm -hmm. markets should be in trouble. The other side of that is emerging markets tend to underperform when US interest rates are going up. If those have peaked, that's a good news story for them. Mm -hmm. But how do you unpick all of that waffle that I've just said in, <laughs> into something uh, sensible for our listeners? Yeah, well, look, I think um, it's it's about ultimately what's priced in. Sentiment in, in Asia has been bad. Sentiment in China has been terrible. So you don't have to surprise too much on the upside for that to have a material impact on, on, on share prices. Um, I think the interesting thing in China in particular is whilst we have a problem in the Western world that inflation's been increasing, that gives you very limited opportunity to do anything with, with, with interest rates in terms of cutting interest rates to stimulate the economy. Obviously in China you don't have that because growth's been um, you know, very underwhelming um, and the economy's been struggling. So that d- does mean that they can pull a number of levers to provide stimulus. I think the other thing as well in, in, in China is that people forget that um, when they decide they're going to do something, it happens instantaneously. You know, there's no boards or they, they, they don't have to check with anybody. If they need to, if they need to provide a stimulus in a certain region of China, it, it happens I- immediately. And I think it's just, you know, it's a classic geopolitical um, Western world order to be naturally quite critical of what's going on in China. Um, if you actually look at the, the underlying companies reporting, companies like, you know, Tencent, 
Um, they've consistently been delivering ahead of expectations, but that's not been rewarded in share price performance. So actually, I agree with you. I think it's it's usually counterintuitive to be positive on emerging markets when we could be heading into a Western recession. But I actually think um, there's a lot of value to be had in, 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 in areas like Asia and, and particularly in areas like China at the moment. To what extent, though, do um, China companies and Chinese exposed companies uh, need to uh, have a little bit of an extra discount to take care of, to take account of, I suppose, political uh, risk uh, companies can be delivering the earnings mm-hmm. or whether the earnings get to the shareholders is not necessarily just at the whim of the board of directors mm-hmm. as it is in, in other uh, countries. Yeah, so I think that's absolutely right. And I, I would be avoiding state-owned enterprise type listed vehicles in China because as you, as you say, they are you know, they, they, they are, they're not run purely for the benefit of shareholders. I think companies outside of that um, are, I mean, inevitably will always trade at a discount relative to a US competitor. But I think that discount is has gone too far. Um, and of course, we're not without political risk in the West either. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the UK, for example, next year in, 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 in elections and so on. And geopolitical risk also affects um, the Western world. I mean, we can see in, in, in Europe the, the announcement of, um, you know, the competition review for EV um, imports into, into Europe. You know, if that triggers off some, some sort of um, tit for tat, um, you know, sanction type uh, movement by the Chinese and luxury good manufacturers in Europe. I mean, that that could be, you know, that could be very bad for quoted European companies. So the discount that applies to Chinese companies, of course, is already there, but, you know, it's maybe not quite as reflected as much in, in some of the Western counterparts. Thank you. And actually, that takes us to, you mentioned the European um, equities. And one of the phenomena I think of, of last year and perhaps early this year was that some of the European listed luxury goods companies um, performed very strongly in, in share price terms mm-hmm. based on the idea that there either was or would be a sort of revenge spending from Chinese consumers who had been who had been um, locked down. Um, do you still regard those as an attractive way to, uh, to gain exposure to China? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, I I would have said that there wasn't a huge amount of value in in, in those share prices um, before we saw the announcement on you know EV, the the review of EV imports in into Europe. I would say that the political risk associated um, with quoted luxury companies in Europe is actually more than probably the other way round into into Chinese companies, given that they're trading on, on on such a discount. I mean, a lot of those companies like LVMH, I would argue, were priced. You know, very, very highly. You know, there's not a much, much room for disappointment in those valuations. Um, as you say, it's, I think it's been a surprise to us all that they've managed to, to maintain and uh, you know increase their, you know their revenues and their and their profitability through this period. They've been able to pass on all of the inflationary mm-hmm. increase in in raw materials through through. through Again, it's, it's quite counterintuitive that yeah, economic uncertainty, inflation, and the luxury goods companies thrive but but that 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 does seem to be what what happened yeah exactly and you know it's what it shows you is very high-end discretionary spending has not been impacted so much by the cost of living crisis i mean we know it's impacting people on middle middle and lower incomes more than people on higher incomes 
I, I suppose the only rationalisation which is anecdotal is as in as yields have increased, maybe you know people who have assets have been able to generate higher higher incomes off off those assets, which means they're not they're not impaired as much by um, you know by the cost of living crisis and inflation more generally. Sure, thank you. Um, and then uh, turning to the um, fixed income exposures within uh, within the Atomos uh, portfolios, we, we've touched on that question of, of duration and the uh, highly unusual feature that, that short uh, duration outperformed long duration over the past month or so. But how, how are you thinking about those questions within the portfolios that you that you operate. Yeah, so I think this is the you know this is the interesting thing that it's very easy I think to become very myopic when we're going through periods like this. But if we're if we're looking at something like a you know a 10-year UK government guilt and all of a sudden you can get four and a half you know you're possibly going to get up towards 5% on 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 a 10-year government bond soon. Um as a long-term investor that is you know great value I think. And of course, in the short term, you could get some noise as we see, um, you know, peak rates come through. But I think just generally, you know, I've been in the in the market since 1997. You have to go back to the late 90s now to see a, a period where interest rates were as were as high as they are now. And I think there's a lot of scaremongering going on. But I think you know, human ingenuity, disruption is not is not going anywhere. Of course, we've had lots of, um, you know, there's been lots of hype around AI, but we haven't seen the practical implications and, and, and implementation of, of, of AI. And I think that's going to be disruptive. And I think that will have a negative impact on bargaining power for wage growth and so on on a three to five year view. So, um, of course, in the next three to six months, who knows what's going to happen. But I think long dated government bonds now look incredibly good value if you're investing on anything other than a six month window. Thank you. And um, does it matter almost uh, whether it's guilds or T-bills or, or anything or any other developed market bond? Um, no, I don't think so, so much. I mean, it's quite interesting to see that the UK uh, bond market is more or less trading in lockstep with the with the US market, I mean, give or take, but it's it tends to be trading in, 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 in the same way, which I, I, I know is an historic correlation, but surprises me a little bit. As a UK investor, inevitably... It, you are, you know, you're, you're investing quite a pure basis. So if you just want to lock in the the yield, um, you're not taking any additional currency risk. Um, I think U.S. Treasuries look attractive. I just think U.S. the U.S. is is going to be the dominant, you know, Western world um, country going forward as it as it has been in the past. Um, and also, the U.S. has the advantage of having reserve currency status. So when everything sells off and people get really worried. The dollar tends to rise in value. Sure. So I think um, there and is, and then that means that the real value of the income from your T bill, if you're a sterling, if you're paying bills in sterling, but you're getting paid in 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 dollars, then a stronger dollar helps. Right? Exactly, and 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 almost um, the counter of that is that um, sterling is is classified as being a sort of risk on currency. So when everybody's super optimistic, okay, sterling tends to rise, and you know, and people become a bit more. Negative sterling sterling tends to sell off, which is exactly what we've been seeing um, recently as well. So, you've got this double whammy that um, if you want to build some sort of insurance into your kind of return stream, U.S. Treasuries again, I think look quite attractive too. Thank you. And um, if if one can get those sort of yields on on sovereign 
um, sovereign developed market bonds, is there any need or any case for owning corporates? I know obviously the yield is higher. There is some mm-hmm. there is some spread, of course, but does one need to take that that risk? Yeah, I think it's selectively. Yes, um, of course. What happens when interest rates have risen as much as they have done? is it is going to spill over to the real economy at some point. You are going to have companies who get into distress. Um, a lot of companies refinanced when we were going through the COVID lockdown period because interest rates, if you remember, were sort of low and negative in, in, in real terms. Um, but there will be a, a wall of refinancing that takes place. And when that refinancing takes place, you're going to have people going from, you know, paying yields of early low percentage figures into, you know, possibly double digit figures okay so companies will go bust at that point i mean that's an that's an inevitability i mean that and that is a consequence of rates staying higher for longer um companies that are going to be hit hardest like you know by by that are you know utilities and so on we saw you know i think it was birmingham council who got into difficulty recently gone into bankruptcy so some of the utility companies could get into a lot of difficulty so i think it's a question of how much risk do you need to take to get that additional yield if you can get you know, almost, you know, 6% on government bonds, do you really need to take that default risk to get an extra percent or 2%? Of course, if it's an extra 5 or 6%, it's worth it's worth taking the risk, but um, you have to be highly selective. Thank you. And just at the the top level, what, what, what does your uh, allocation to fixed income look like at the moment relative to, 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 to history? Yeah, so we've been, you know, we've been slightly increasing the duration in, in in portfolios. I mean, we tend to do things in quite a progressive manner. So, um, you know, we're we're, we're longer term investors, so we're not we're not really, um, you know, sort of massively changing duration views. We tend to do things incrementally. But even at the asset class level, are you increasing exposure to fixed income of any kind? Yeah, yeah we're, we're 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 constructive in the outlook for fixed income. Um, we're constructive in the outlook for growth companies. Growth companies trade kind of counterintuitively trade quite like fixed income securities as well because they're very interest rate sensitive um and you know we have a bias towards the us relative to the to the uk um obviously that gives us more exposure to to growth type companies than it does um to someone in the uk where where there's more of a, a tilt towards value companies so we are you know we are expressing a longer duration view um and again we're trying to capitalize on 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 what we believe on a on a sort of five to ten year view, ele- an elevated level of rates. Okay, well, thank you for that, Haig. I'm afraid that is all we have time for, but thank you very much for joining me, Haig yeah. Bathgate, Head of Investments at Atomos Wealth. And thank you all for listening. Please do remember to tune in to future editions of the Asset Allocator podcast. Thank you. <laughs>